You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Will Mavity's interviews with the sound editor for Sound of Metal, Nicholas Becker, director and writer Darius Martyr, and star Paul Rizzi. You sound great. Yeah, right. What? You're telling me you weren't feeling it? You were in it. We don't need to, we don't need to put them all out. I know, but we just need to film hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou, no. let's play tomorrow. Let's see what it's like, okay? I'm gonna be like a click track. You can play to me. The big question I had first and foremost was, how'd you end up in the driver's seat on this one? I- I've heard your work on Gravity, Arrival, some other films, but how did you end up as the supervising sound editor here? Uh, I mean, it's 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 just like uh, very simple. I, uh, I went to I went to New York to do a, like a very big sound installation in the Armory Park for an artist mm-hmm. called Philippe Parano, uh, and, and I met uh, this musician I invite to work on this show called Thomas Bartlett, mm-hmm. and uh, and Thomas Bartlett is a very good friend of uh, of Ab- Abraham, uh, mm-hmm. which is the brother of uh, Darius and also Darius. So I think they were uh, trying to find, um, you know, a sound supervisor for the film. And I think when uh, when the like Thomas explained a bit like how I was working, I think it, it came, you know, like Darius thought like, and Abe said like, okay, maybe these are the, the guy we should work with, because I'm 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 not I mean I'm doing a, I have a lot of different practice. So I'm doing music. I'm doing a lot of sound installation. I'm doing sound design. I was a foley artist. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think also I think when you know that you don't have you don't have a huge budget, and and uh, you want to be in control, I think yeah. it's interesting to work with someone which is able to to more or less know a bit about all the job you can make you can do in in film, in sound for film. You know, so in a way we were more autonomous. You know, so we were <laughs> we knew that with a, a small team, but with a bit of time we could be able to do something great that's and we couldn't do that with like a, a, a big team with a small time you know yeah. so the fact that i was able to and me and my assistant where she she's very good with music she's very good with dialogue she's with with, with many things so we we, uh, we were able to 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 work like that and also the fact that what was very specific that i liked to work with directors you know i'm mm-hmm. not i'm not the, the kind of person who i say like give me the film i'm gonna work on my own and let's 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 you know and i come to, to like, let's let's see each other or maybe in you know, two months or something like that I, I i i've been always dreaming about doing this job to spend time with directors yeah. you know and to to be able to 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 find a way to push boundaries together you know and and, and create a specific and consistent vocabulary for you know each film and i'm not working with some commercial sound libraries i'm i'm recording all all the sound i'm using so wow. you know for me it's also a way to 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 start like each each film for me i started from scratch in a way mm-hmm. you know so i try to to each time think about 
like when you do a piece of art, you know, like when you, when you do a, a prototype, you know? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, so for me, it's, there is no rules, you know? It's like, I know that I have this experience, I have this practice, blah, 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 blah. But how, you know, let's, let's try to see for this film the best way to work, you know? Clearly your background and a little bit of everything uh, really paid off here because I, uh, if, if you had to create everything from the ground up, I imagine the Foley work on this was, was crazy, especially for uh, creating some of that stuff in the third act uh, with the surgically augmented sound. So I guess I was curious, was the sound in the film goes in kind of three stages, right? Mm -hmm. um, at least to me, it was before he really has any major loss, then mm -hmm. the big loss, and then the post-surgery. For how each of those sounded, you said you work a lot with, you worked a lot with Darius in this. Whose idea for kind of how each stage sounded was it? Yeah, I mean, we, what was very interesting is that, for example, we, it was very important. The first thing is like, okay, the, the, the opening scene with the concert, we knew from the start that it's going to be super important that we do believe totally that it's live, you know, mm -hmm. and the musicians are playing. It's not fake. It's not a playback, you know, and, 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 and you can feel it. And I'm sure even if you're not trying to understand it, like the audience feel it. Mm -hmm. And it was very important because if you, if you, if they accept that, I think they, they kind of come, you know, they, they follow you, you know, they follow you. And we try to keep the same line, you know, like when, when uh, there is this hearing loss, we spend a lot of time with like trying to, to, to know what the body is receiving as vibration, you know, and try to not try to, to create something crazy, but just like to be as, of course, there is a lot of different ways of losing hearing. But let's say we say like, okay, how how the how the body receives sound if if the ear are not working? Yeah, you know. And and I actually work, I have a friend which actually uh, is trying to create a, a a special device for the people who have lost hearing to, mm -hmm. to put on their chest and their back and to be able to go to see concerts and mm. and, and and see films. And it's kind of recreate all the different variations of, of dynamic and colors you can get, but only with the contact, only with the, the you know the vibration. And yeah. so I spoke I spoke a lot also with him about all his research he have done uh, with uh, Deaf People Institute, you know, and audiologists to try to see how your brain is able to reconstruct sound through the body. So that was for the first part. And this, what also is interesting is that you have uh, people which have lost hearing and, and, and uh, like uh, after 30 or 40 years. So when they became like totally, totally deaf, mm -hmm. they, they are still able to describe. Right. You know, what, what they feel and what they receive and how it sounds. And also it was the same for the hearing implants. You know, we, 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 we spoke, we, we get a lot of information from, from different people who, who had this implant and who tried to describe how it was, you know? So we, we didn't try to make it like, on, you know, over the top. 
you know mm-hmm. we, we're trying to make it like really like realistic in a way even if it's not realistic because you 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 i mean like it's 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 very specific you know like um, the experience of some, someone who have hearing implants mm-hmm. but we try to be like very simple because i think also it was trying to to say that the, the film and the story and the character are more important than all the effects you 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 want to make you know and i did also a lot of recording with like uh stethoscope i i create like some stethos stethoscope microphones so oh, interesting. I, I also microphone like you can put in your mouse and microphone <laughs> you can you can have in contact with your school or you know so i i I did get a lot of record. I, I did. I did. I did a lot of recording with uh, Riz also. You know, when there is a sequence in the audio booth at the start of the film during the mm-hmm. shooting, we stayed like there for two or three hours, and I record a lot of, a, a lot of small little details. You know, like even sound of the mouse moving. You know, right. like like muscle sound, like blood pressure, heartbeat. You know, so we had this kind of of library we could refer to sometimes and then after because i didn't have the time to do the foley but i i i know an amazing foley artist who have also worked with adastra mm-hmm. Finland, and we spent a lot of time together in the past working together on different projects so i actually bring i went to to finland and i g- gave him all my weird diy microphones <laughs> so he actually did the foley with that also so and he's an amazing performer so i knew that it's going to be great so in a way in that way also i was in control about what's going to be produced by him were you also so you were there from the very beginning of production too you were involved with the uh production sound mixing as well that was kind of factored into what you were doing that that's uh, that's something i'm doing now since maybe six, seven years, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's not, it's not happening. For example, when there is director who work for me, who want to work for me for the first time, they don't know about it. So they call me uh, after maybe after the shooting or something like that, or at the start of the picture editing. But uh, normally when I, with the, the, the people I used to work uh, like um, Andrea Arnold or some other directors, I always uh, start much before the, the shooting, you know, because wow. I think it's a, it's also a, a way to be able to, to control, you know, like to say like okay, to also control the 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 the, the money which is spent, you know, and say like okay, this is very important, this is not so important, we can do that easily after, this is so important, we have, to, you know, like, so to try to find a way to, to according to all the different uh, uh, input you can get from. Uh, all the te- technician from a producer to first assistant to set designer to costume designer to, to everybody you know try to find the, the best way to be there without to uh, slow down the process of, of the shoots but uh, trying to do the opposite you know trying to actually bring a lot of uh, interesting information or, 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 or you know like background or feedback to to to, to everybody and 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 I think it's I don't know why people don't do that because it's 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 so nice for everybody you know oh yeah you know like like it's it's I mean it should be normal and I think that's something we have lost because also of the when we move from analog to digital mm-hmm. we had a lot of hyper specialization so everybody went like you know out a bit like in you know and then we kind of miss you know something 
And that's why I, I like also so much to work with a, a small film, you know, in, not small in, in, in the, I mean, they can be amazing, but like small size film, because I think you are able to kind of recover this, this idea of, of being a, a smaller uh, utopic collaborative uh, mm -hmm. moment, you know? Well, so since you were involved with everyone, I, I assume you all, and you have a background with music as well, mm -hmm. I assume you were involved with composing the film. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell me a little bit about collaborating with- Composer Albert, with Albert. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, let's say that uh, when I came in the film, uh, I mean, like, I, I, I met, I, I, I met and we, we I spent a lot of time with Ed, but he was, he had work already. He had wrote the script, you know, with his brother. So he was like, so into the film. So I said like, okay, I can't be more involved <laughs> than you in the, in the idea of the, of, so he really like work on the, on the music of the concert. He really, he really did it. And I was just like, I was able to say like, oh, I love this one. Or I love this. I don't like, so, you know, so we kind of share that together, but he was really leading all this part. But then after when came the moment where we said like, okay, we should uh, create like a kind of inner additional music. We, we, there wouldn't be like a textual music, but there would be like, just like kind of resonance of like go, kind of a ghost music. Mm -hmm. Then at this moment, I, I, it was really, I mean, like my, that's something I really like because most of the time when people are coming to me, they say like, okay, I like most of the director I'm working with, they, 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 not, they, they love diegetic music, but mm -hmm. they, they, really, they, they really care about not putting too much film music, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and, and uh, it's something, it's, it's a question, you know? So most of the time the idea is to go, to go and, and try to stop, but not, not, trying never to, to become too big or, or, or too cheesy or to, right. you know, like trying to always, it's even better for me to, to create a frustration than to create the opposite, you know, like, like a kind of, you know, like too much, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, so, and, and that's, that's, uh, that I love to, to, to this idea of a music should grow from uh, the film, like give you the feeling that the the the, the film is produ is pro producing music. It's not the composer, which you know. It's like you have. I think for me, you really have to feel that it's 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 yeah. The film is producing the music, uh, and not not someone else. Uh, and um, for that reason, I think we really try to to focus on. Okay, we had all this diegetic music, and really like this concert. So now we should we should we should try to to work with with this material and trying to work around like maybe lost vibration of of some you know some musical part of or like some feedback and then trying to see how we can construct something around that and so we 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 ended by uh, I have have an amazing kind of guitar metal guitar you know. Mm -hmm. And also, I used to work with very specific and strange instrument called like bachet, bachet structures, okay. uh, and they are like really like beautiful kind of metal flower you activate with crystal bar, mm. uh, and they are really like kind of ghost sound, like a kind of ghost orchestra. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so we 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 made a lot of uh, experiments, and then we at the end we really find something interesting by mixing this metal guitar and this metal instrument, which we will, of course, I mean fit so much with this this, this the title sound of metal, you know? <laughs> you know, and also the slide, you know, for example, the slide sequence, it's it's not it's not the sound of the slide, it's the sound of this instrument. So there is a kind of sometimes intrusion of, of, of we kind of switch, you know, or, yeah. or, or, you know, between musical sound and, and, and using musical sound for normal sequences and, and, and using normal sound from the film, for, uh, you know, as music. Yeah. So it was a kind of, you know, trying to mix things together, like to make like the difference between reality and fiction very tiny. Okay, so... And and nowhere is is that more apparent than when it's weaving back and forth in the third act once he has his implants. Um, I know this is a hard question to ask with about two minutes left, but how did you create what he hears? I mean, I know you spoke to people, but how did you do it? What he hears once he has his implant? Uh, you know, I just like, I mean, I mean I've, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of tests for a lot of different companies about like plugins, like, uh, you know, like the process stuff and, you know, mm -hmm. and I work with this place, a lot with this place called IRCAM, mm -hmm. which have been uh, built by uh, Boulez, you know, which are research center. And uh, I, I, because I think the, the, it's totally digital, I, I knew that we have to find for uh, look for a digital uh, process. Mm -hmm. And there is, they have done this very interesting tools which permit to separate like music in different contents, in, in not in the ways we used to separate like low low frequency, mid frequency, high frequency, but you can separate like in everything which is tonal, mm -hmm. everything which is noise, and everything which is like transient, like attack. Right. And, 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 and when you work with this tool and you ask him to a kind of deconstruct the sound and reconstruct after the fact that it's, it's, it's not working perfectly. So you have like kind of, so it's, it's like, you know, you, you break something and, and you put it back mm -hmm. and it's never exactly the same. So we kind of, you know, because there is delay of treatment, which are not the same. You know, he, he tried to reconstruct, but he's not reconstructing well, you know, everything. So I, I found this tool was really amazing because you, you kind of, you have everything, but not in the right place or yeah. not the right amount or not like in the right way, but you have got everything you should need to understand something. Uh, okay, and before I go, last question. Um, what else has sounded really good to you, like other movie-wise this year? What are your favorite sounding movies so far? Ooh. <laughs> I mean, uh, I I love uh, Ocho y Media. I haven't uh, seen that yet. But yeah, I... like Fellini films, like old Fellini, like uh, oh, okay. Eight and a Half. I love I love so much the conversation. Conversation is yeah. incredible to listen yeah. to. Yeah, that's yeah. I love also a lot like Stalker Tarkovsky. Oh yeah, film. I haven't seen Tarkovsky's one yet. Yeah, I mean. Good. I mean, I love so. I mean, like, I love, I love films before I love sound. For yeah. you know, like, like, I'm, I'm I see. Yes, Blade Runner. I was fourteen, mm -hmm. and Blade Runner for me was like two thousand one Blade Runner. I was thirteen and fourteen when I saw these two films. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And for me, it was like uh, something amazing, sonic-wise, visually, but also sonic-wise, it was like a kind yeah. of explosion. Yeah, explosion visually and explosion sonically, you know? Yeah, and the, the second one, too, also sounded amazing, too, 2049. But yeah. uh, we'll, well, thank you so much, Nicholas. It was wonderful talking to you. And, thank um, you so much. Best of luck this Oscar season. I hope you're... Uh, I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> You understand me? I can't. I'm deaf. I'm deaf. I found a place. I think it's important that you stay here with us right now, Ruben. We're looking for a solution to to this. Not this. I need you to wait for me. Okay, you're in for me. You're my part. You're in for me. Okay, you gotta wait for me. Hi, Darius. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, even better now that I get to talk to you. I mean, this was a fantastic film. <laughs> oh, thanks. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, you've had quite an eclectic background in terms of what you've worked on. Uh, you've done docs. You've been an editor. You've written. So how was directing a narrative feature different from working on a doc or writing a screenplay for something like Place Beyond the Pines that somebody else directed? Well, you know, it's interesting because like in the case of Place Beyond the Pines, first of all, I mean, I'm not really much of a writer for hire because I kind of have, I never was in this game to, to do anything but direct, to tell you the truth. And it was a bit of a happenstance that I, I directed a doc first, um, and that was just because that's what the world brought to me um, in a way that was undeniable and, and a tremendous creative experience. But I, working with Derek is interesting because we really work together as two directors when we work as writers. You know, we both think that way, and um, and you know, it's a rare thing. I don't really work with other directors and I don't really write things for other people, but working with Derek is very special because we have a very close relationship and we're, we're both drawn to something that has a very common, um, you know, essence to it, which is, man, maybe that comes from my work in documentary and his work in documentary. We're really looking for that place where fiction and truth collide. Yeah. Well, so tell me a little bit about the uh, the documentary background to this film, because the story came to you because you were researching a a, a band where it, I think one of the performers was deaf, correct? Well, a little bit correct. Uh, <laughs> not profoundly deaf, but <laughs> basically, so when I met Derek 13 years ago, he was filming this band, Jucifer. And Jucifer is a man and a woman, a couple that live kind of on a road, very much like Ruben and Lou. And, and they play this extraordinarily loud music. And while he was filming Jucifer as a doc, um, Edgar, the drummer, started to experience some tinnitus. And, um, and then kind of started to imagine the, what it would be like to lose this sense. And it was at that time that Derek had the incredible idea to what if there was this, um, and you added this fictional element to this doc and kind of explored that. And so the film actually that he was making called Metalhead and that I ended up editing um, 
was exploring that idea. And then it, it felt clear to me that it wasn't going to, I got very obsessed with this idea, but the, 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 and that's what this, that was the seed of what this grew into. And you're exactly right that it's almost like there was a, you know, whatever it was, five to eight years of research of this real couple in this real world that, that actually was the foundation before I even began writing. And that's a tremendous gift. Well, obviously you, uh, I mean, you had this to pull from, but one of the things people have really talked about it is uh, on a broader level, the film seems generally very well researched into the deaf community at large. So uh, tell me a little bit about what kind of background work you did in fleshing out the world of the film we ended up with. Yeah, well, the, the you know, first of all, I worked with the deaf community to build all of those, you know, those scenes. Like, and some of them came from actors that were working on the movie, which was really fantastic. Like, for instance, the games you see, you know, the kids playing with, with Ruben, you know, those came from Lauren Ridloff who like one of them is a specific elephant game they play that's completely unique to the deaf community. No one outside deaf culture would know of that game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and those were some of the riches that are on the screen all over the place, that they just came right from that community. And that was essential. So, you know, the research that, you know, I always knew I wasn't going to be making up deaf culture. That's not, <laughs> not something I was interested in. So yes, there was a lot of research, and I would just say that, you know, as it related to everything you see within deaf culture, that all came from deaf culture, um, all of it. You know, it, it wasn't, I didn't write any of that. Um, I, I, I was kind of invited into it and was and framed it, but didn't write it, don't represent it. Um, the the, the heavy-duty listing was about that kind of feeling and process of going deaf and losing hearing and entering into that space. And that was, that took a lot of experimentation and research. And then of course we recreated that experience in real time on set where Riz had these custom earpieces that he, that were made for him to emit like a white noise mm. that didn't allow him to hear. So I actually controlled his hearing or lack of hearing uh, with my, my phone. Oh, wow. And he, and so we, we had a very meta experience, you know, where we were shooting chronologically. Um, and as, so at first it's tinnitus and those things would impersonate tinnitus. So he actually had a ringing in his ears, if you can imagine yeah. that he was, he was actually contending with a real physical experience that's enough to drive anyone crazy. And, um, and then that gave way to a white noise that didn't allow him to hear his own voice. And, that was that was really important because he was literally going through it, and then eventually, of course, we hear that in our sound design. So you know, it was a, it was a very interesting experience. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. 
I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. So one of the things I thought was most interesting in the direction that you took his, uh, Ruben's character is that, uh, at least in the film, there's there's he doesn't relapse, and uh, at least from the ending, uh, I personally don't think he's going to. Um, did you ever consider taking his direction, his story arc, in a different direction in terms of him relapsing? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, by the way, it's, it's really interesting, and just it, just in the way that you frame it, because um, I, and yes, we did. You know, we we probably wrote fifteen hundred pages, two thousand pages to to get to this script. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the reasons, you know, the, the type of addiction that Ruben has is is such that if he were to use the stories over, yeah, and you know, he's he's not getting back up. It's not that story. And so the, the, and, and it's also, but it's a little more specific than that. It's also that the, the idea is that the, you know, the film might feel a bit like a horror movie in the beginning, you know, but the, this like the horror movie where you don't see the monster and the monster is within. So the, that's, that's, that's what's actually scary. It's not really the loss of sound that's scary. It's what's happening inside Ruben. That's scary. And that monster was there before the monster is there in the first frame. It's just not awakened. So the idea of relapse is fascinating. And maybe I'd push back on you a little to say that there isn't a relapse because you're right. There's not a a literal taking of a drug in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is, but there is, but addiction shows itself in the movie. And and it, it shows itself in different ways. And, you know, that's something I was really interested in. So I, my brother and I really struggled with this idea of how can we represent addiction without actually showing literal. Yeah. How do you understand the weight of that? And it was, just seemed like a much loftier ambition. And um, can we feel its presence? Can we really feel it? And, you know, when, when, when Joe says to him, you look and sound like an addict, mm-hmm. you know, that is, that could be seen as a relapse of sorts. It was certainly enough to get him booted. Yeah. And as you said, I guess that, that is, that is so much more interesting than him just, you know, becoming addicted. Um, getting hooked on heroin again. Yeah, story story over. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously, this is deliberately ambiguous, but I it will drive me crazy always wondering, do you personally see at least a moderately positive future for Ruben in the aftermath of the film? I do. Good. I really do. <laughs> Good. I, just, I, I 100% do. I, I am not, uh, I, think, I think it's not an easy road, you know? Ruben, there's a kind of almost um, mythic 
journey to this of giving up everything, literally everything um, that you have, that you are. Um, and that's very on purpose, you know, from the first frame to the last frame, which are almost identical frames. The interesting thing is in the first frame, he has no shirt on and he has these tattoos and he has all these aspects of his identity. And in the end, he's covered up, uh, but he's in the light. And I always see that as this, this interesting meditation on what is it that we are. He's, he doesn't, he's not, he's not experiencing himself through that identity anymore, but he's actually experiencing himself. So that, that concept of selfhood and what that really is. I know Ruben walks off with selfhood and that's really the most hopeful place we can possibly be in. Okay. So what you just described there, I, I love that bit of visual symbolism. Um, are there any other sort of uh, mise-en-scene visual storytelling aspects that you're especially proud of in how you communicated uh, through here? Cause I hadn't even thought of that, but that's, that's a fantastic bit of visual. Well, there's a lot of intentionality in that. I mean, more more than you can possibly fathom. And <laughs> I, I, I have so much. I mean, truly, because we took an incredibly deep dive on how to tell a story. Remember that you can't have sound experience without visual, uh, you know, without a visual counterpart to that. It has to be thought of ahead of time. You have to understand how you're cutting it, and and that was extremely difficult. And it also so there's this there's a level of intentionality that you, really what we're after is creating a simple language that doesn't draw attention to its own cinematography, mm-hmm. but but is highly but is highly intentional. So there's so much of this, even the angle that we are constantly referencing uh, Ruben from throughout the movie is a little bit behind him, and um, that is very on purpose. Actually, there's it's I always thought about it with with Riz and with Ruben as earning his eyes you know, earning that, that straightforwardness of him and when we chose to do that. And so it isn't just simply, even though the shot might feel very simple or even handheld or even fly on the wall, like it's, it's, it's really not because ultimately you know where we're getting to. And there's another aspect that's very, that's very fascinating and something we worked on, which is that this film has a point of hearing, not a point of view. And, and that's different. It's a different language. It's, we haven't really seen that in a film before at least i haven't and that's represented in the cinematography itself daniel Bouquet is an incredible cinematographer and but it's really fascinating because it isn't until the end that we actually do have a point of view um you know when when ruben looks at something throughout the movie we don't look with him and the reason for that is that we're actually we're actually in his point of hearing so it isn't until he disengages from that point of hearing that we can disen- that we actually can then experience something else. So there's this very, very high degree of intentionality about the way that's shot and about the way that's cut. Well, that would, that was absolutely fantastic. And I need to rewatch the film now because I think I'm going to appreciate some of your, your visual work even more there. We're about out of time, but I did want to ask, do you have any idea what you want to work on next? in terms of directing and stories you want to tell? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm really interested in, in, you know, highly kind of emotional and raw stories. And I'm writing one right now that's 
um, very ambitious and intense. It's kicking my ass <laughs> as we speak. Um, and, and that's kind of how I like it. I, I think that I'm really, really, you know, it's interesting right now in this world of COVID because, you know, there aren't a lot of fancy things happening. People aren't having parties and they're not this and that and the other thing. Essentially, there's not those distractions. And I think the great thing about being a writer-director is that the writing is such, it's such a hard journey that it, it, it brings you back to earth. And then, you know, that process of, of birthing a story is so necessary. And that kind of authorship is something I'm really interested in. So I'm in the, the hell of it right now, <laughs> but I'm kind of happy to be there. Well, I can't, I can't wait to see and hear whatever you have next. And, and thank you for bringing us this wonderful film. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for talking. Trying to save my life. Ruben. The world does keep moving. It can be a damn cruel place. But those moments of stillness. When this crappy, mundane world suddenly becomes radiant and magnificent. All the fear is gone. That place will never abandon you. Paul, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, sir? Oh, I, I'm doing fantastic. I, uh, I was blown away, frankly, by, by your performance. Uh, and I've... I'm I'm hoping that you're gonna end up in the supporting actor conversation this year because that was that was a hell of a role you had. I appreciate you saying that. I, I a while back uh, you said something on Twitter that just blew my mind about uh, the movie and about my performance, and I, I really appreciate you, Will. I appreciate that so much. Well, I'm 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 glad to hear you came across that. So I know you you've had you know you've had a long time background. You've been an interpreter. You perform for a uh, a sign language friendly band. How did you end up acting here? Well, I've I've studied acting in Chicago uh, when I got out of uh, when I came back from Vietnam. Uh, I used the GI Bill to go to school, got in the acting program. So I've been acting for forty years, but as a day player out here in, in Los Angeles and doing a ninety nine seat theater for Deaf West Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I was able to keep my chops up that way, but never had a never had a role like this because uh, they always went with a name. Always, I just missed the mark every single time until this script came along, and it was so close to me and everything that I lived. You know, if I had to wait thirty five years for this kind of role, I to me it, the whole experience was so worth it because uh, I got a chance to show my chops in a very special kind of a movie. So uh, one thing I, w- I was interested in is I, I just spoke to Darius, and he was saying that um, a lot of the lived-in feel of the movie and the specifics of what goes on at the community um, were not written by him. A lot of the cast members, yourself included, kind of taught him and brought him a lot of what was going to go on in that school in the house. What's some of the stuff that you contributed? Well, 
along the, the years here, you know, I've had my own addiction problems. I've been through programs. And also I've been in, in the old days, in the 80s and 90s, if a deaf person had an addiction and was in trouble, they had to go to a hearing program. And then they'd have an interpreter that would follow them all day long and go through the machinations or whatever they have to do, you know, AA stuff and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, here in L.A., there's a place called Awakenings. It's deaf-owned and deaf-run, which is the way it should be, because uh, uh, putting a deaf person through a hearing program just doesn't work. Yeah. So with my experience of my own problems, my own loss and disappointment over the years, and then being an interpreter for a deaf guy going through it, I, I know very well how, how it works for them. And so are these deaf people that were on set. And Darius made it very clear from the beginning. I told him in the beginning, if you're going to do this movie, there's a saying in the deaf community, nothing about us without us. Mm-hmm. You better have some deaf input. And he was so open to it. Uh, he didn't consider his script to be Shakespeare. He was willing to, to go with the flow, switch things around, uh, conform so that it meant more to the deaf population. It was more of a real portrayal of what goes on in the deaf world than what he thought at first when he wrote this thing 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I have to credit Darius for being able to go on that learning curve and swing with, whenever he, we'd let him know this is not accurate, he, he went with it. So you uh, did you get to give him any specifics as well? Um, you know, if you remember, there's a scene uh, where we're, it opens, we're doing the serenity prayer, we're in a circle, and then there's an actual AA, meet, AA meeting happening. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, don't, I don't remember what his original idea was, but I said, why don't you just let me run it? And, and we ran it like they do with, with the deaf. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and a lot of that, unfortunately, is on the cutting room floor. But, boy, we there's some gems of stuff happening uh when we actually filmed a whole aa meeting and these deaf people sitting in that circle had some real addiction problems that they were laying bare Mm. and uh it was just beautiful i mean i'm talking addictions like you know sexual addictions and fetishes and just beer cocaine heroin meth and part of what's so cool about this movie and i'm talking to deaf people they're excited to show this rawness of the deaf. See, a lot when you see deaf people, you think, oh, aren't they sweet? They're saints. Poor, poor it's quiet, meek deaf people. No, they have addictions. There are deaf doctors out there. There are deaf lawyers, deaf accountants. They're all over the place. And uh, they're not being portrayed correctly in Hollywood, if I, if, if, if I can say that. It's, it's, it's a shame what they're doing. So that's what's so cool about seeing a sober house full of deaf people run by this guy who decides to join their cause because he's just become one of them from this bombing incident in Vietnam after he loses everything. Mm -hmm. What would you like to see in the wake of this movie change in Hollywood in regard to how the deaf are often portrayed on screen? Well, uh, First of all, do you remember Wonderstruck, the movie with Julianne Moore three years ago? Yeah, yeah, the Todd Haynes one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they, in that particular movie, they had uh, her character played as a young girl by an a authentic deaf actress. Was right. a wonderful choice. Mm-hmm. And then Julianne Moore comes in at the end of the movie as an adult and does sign language. And to me and to many deaf people, 
it was like blackface. Mm. She didn't she didn't portray it accurately, and it was a mortal sin. And I can name two or three deaf actors out here in L.A. that would have done that role much more authentically and done a, a better job. But hey, she brought money with her probably, and she's a name. And I understand. I've been dealing with that in Hollywood here for thirty five years. That's fine. But what what would I like to see? I'd like to see some deaf people being portrayed on screen, uh, even even as uh, small little roles. The world that I live in is never portrayed on the screen. There's so many different ways that deaf people function in this society of ours. Not I'm not I'm just talking about the United States, let alone the world. But there's just I'd like to see more opportunities open up for uh, deaf artists because mm. there are deaf screen uh, there are deaf uh, directors there are deaf there's not too many deaf writers, but they are out there. Uh, and that's a problem with the language, because uh, to know the English language and then just uh, and know ASL equally as well is is a rare commodity. But it is out there. Yeah, and there are deaf uh, camera people. Oh, my God, there's so many. And, and then not to mention just the actors. You know, uh, out here in L.A., I've done a lot of work with Deaf West Theater mm-hmm. and uh we like, for example, we did uh, over ten years ago. We did of mice and men, where uh, I was uh, George, who could hear and sign, and Lenny was deaf, and all the farmhands were deaf, but the owner of the farm was a hearing guy. Mm. And the parallels of how hearing people control deaf people's lives were were brilliant. Oh yeah, so, uh, it was it was a great production. And I recently did uh, American Buffalo, the David Mamet play in American Sign Language. With another deaf actor, great deaf actor, Troy Kotzer out here. Uh, so they're out here and they're talented. I just want to see them get more opportunities because, uh, you know, look, it's been a struggle for me. I've been a day player for all my life out here. And this is my first role that I've had a chance. But think about deaf actors. They have to fight 10 times harder than me. And think about now if you're deaf and black. Yeah. That guy's got to fight. 15, 20 times harder than anybody. Think of, oh, I mean, there's so many people that are just, uh, my father used to say in the 50s, the hearing guy's got his hand in my pocket. He's, you know, he's scamming me all day long. I can't get ahead. And that's not how deaf people think of themselves today. Today, they have the same, that's where Joe learns his philosophy from deaf people. I'm perfect the way I am. Don't try to fix me. Yeah. You don't speak my language. Why don't you learn sign language? Then we can be on equal footing. So they're they're almost like I used to call my mom a, a, back in the day a, a deaf panther because she was very, very adamant about her, what her rights were. Mm-hmm. And she was fighting for her rights. And deaf people are doing that every day, Will, every day. I just want to see Hollywood open up a little bit and uh, realize that deaf people are not a monolith. They're complicated. There's so many different layers. They need a shot. Well, I hope uh, I hope this film is, is the beginning, and I hope we see a lot less of Julianne Moore's playing those roles in the future. Okay, so there were two scenes in particular I was really curious about uh, how you played them. Um, obviously, the big scene I would love to hear about is your last scene with with Ruben, um, where you you tell him he looks and sounds like an addict, and and you've got tears welling in your eyes. Walk me through that scene a little bit. Well. That day, uh, the day before, all the deaf cast had wrapped, and there was just Riz and I left on the set. 
And uh, it was the weather was beautiful for the whole shoot, three week shoot. But that day it, start, it started to rain. It was cloudy. So already the feeling was very ominous and we knew we had this big scene coming up. And, uh, you know, I've talked a lot with people about how close this role uh, was to me in my own life, being an addict, uh, being a veteran of the war, all the loss, all the things I've seen. But the thing that probably was closest to me and I'm, <laughs> uh, was, there's a line that where I tell him, uh, you know, where the kingdom of God is right here, Reuben. It's right here. It's not out there. That's where the stillness is. And the thing that my philosophy, I grew up a Roman Catholic. I was a, an altar boy. And I was always taught to pray to God who lives up there in heaven, out that so far away that you can't even see him, but you got to pray for something from the outside to come to you. And throughout the years, I've through my uh, my struggles with addiction, I've learned about uh, my higher power and where it is and what it is. And to me, I pray from a place. I don't pray to a God. I pray from that place which lives within my my heart or my chest, if you will. Mm. And it's, so to me, manifestations come from the within to the without, not from the without the within that doesn't make sense to me now i don't want to argue with anybody because they that whatever works for you works but for me all my including this role this movie i've been praying a long time for something like this to happen to my personal higher power which is within me jesus even says uh everything you need is within you he was a master everything you need is within you so i take that to heart so to your question about this particular scene it was so powerful to me because Riz is a great actor and he was a great, great actor to work with. And every word that Darius wrote in that scene rings true for me. So I didn't have to dig too deep. It's from the within to the without. And I, I wish him, I said, I hope this brings you happiness. And I really meant that. And I'm getting choked up talking about it right now, but that scene is 100% authentic and real for me. And I think it was for Riz too. And Darius just stood, I remember him standing in the corner, crying his eyes out, just trying to be non-obtrusive. But uh, we all, I knew that something wonderful was, was happening right there. I think everybody on the set knew something sacred was happening. And it was, I'll never forget it. I, I remember it like, I'll never forget that, that do, doing that scene. But I guess to answer your question, I hope I've answered it. I, <laughs> it's, it was so real. That's what I believe. I, I, Joe and I are, are one. I believe that that's where God lives, too. Mm. Another thing that stood out about your performance is that you, um, and I guess this ties into a lot of your, you tapping into that character and everything coming from within you, but you do a lot of work with your eyes. And there's there's a scene that really stood out to me where you're mad at him because he's been doing work on the house. And there's, yeah. there's, there's a look that you communicate so much just with your eyes of this anger and disappointment. And I, I was, I was curious about that particular scene too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what that is, if there is that much to say about it, but it's. No, no. I, I can tell you 
I can tell you one thing. My mother was a lip reader. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of my mother is in that Joe character. Everything was with her eyes, and she would get annoyed if you'd cover your mouth with your fingers, or and she'd get annoyed with you. And she and uh, so, uh, and she spoke very, very subdued. And if she got angry, she she'd lose it. But um, she, toward her later years in life, she spoke softer and softer because she didn't give a shit anymore. She just if you couldn't hear, it didn't matter. Uh, but that's that's my mom right there. Mm. And I'm, that's I remember telling them, there's nothing to fix here. You're fixing my roof. I don't want you to work on my roof, my eaves. I want you to work on yourself. And so I'm very disappointed with him at that point. And then I try to, you know, give him some advice on how to get still. But it's the same thing in the, with the last scene. Uh, I'm so he breaks my heart with the decision that he makes. It just breaks my heart. So uh, that's just me being aware of. I can't hear anything and I have to look with my eyes. Everything is, a, it's all visual. Yeah. For deaf people. Well, uh, we're about out of time, but the last question I wanted to ask is um, the ending is left ambiguous, but to me it felt optimistic. Do you personally see Ruben returning to that uh, sober living home and uh, staying there to teach? Is that how you personally interpret the ending? I uh, I do I do think of it that way because the look on his face is finally one of serenity. He's finally found that stillness. <laughs> God, what a beautiful what a beautiful ending that is. Mm. And when I when I first read the script, I thought to myself, I think deaf people are going to stand up and applaud mm. because that's the that's the uh, as compared to my father in the fifties, he would always feel like he was the most oppressed man in the world from the hearing community. And now these deaf people today will, they're like, fuck you, <laughs> leave me alone. You know, and to have the, the, the ironically tragic things to, that I've been trying to tell Ruben through the whole script is, you know, don't try to fix it, go with it. You know, and then at the end, he has to learn the hard way. He already gets cut. He gets these things put in his head. And then to have him have the ending that he has there, it's... Uh, it's just so, what an incredible ending. And as I say, deaf people are going to stand and applaud for that ending. Uh, not everybody. I had an interview yesterday say, well, well, what's wrong with him trying to fix himself? And you know what? Uh, I, I would say to that, nothing. Everybody has his own journey. But Joe learns already from the deaf community that he needs to just leave it be. And he's just trying trying to teach Ruben the same thing, but everybody has their own journey. Well, yeah. you know, you couldn't, you couldn't tell me back in the day, you know, Hey, don't do this. or don't, I had to find out for myself. And, uh, tragically, a lot of times it was a horrible mistake. Mm. Well, uh, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to talk and, uh, I'm wishing you the best and this movie, the best this Oscar season. It really is an important, incredible film. So thank you for helping to bring it to us and for telling me a little bit about what you put into this film. And it's, it's, it's really been very moving and it's been a pleasure getting to talk to you. My pleasure, Will. I appreciate you so much. Thank you, sir. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interviews with the supervising sound editor, Nicholas Becker, the director and writer, Darius Martyr, and star, Paul Racy for Sound of Metal. 
which is currently playing in theaters from Amazon Studios and will be on Amazon Prime on December 4th. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop us a comment, leave us a review, rate us five stars. And if you want to take it one step further, head on over to Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.